This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Myron Magnet is editor-at-large of City Journal, an influential urban policy magazine based in New York City. He previously served as the magazine's editor. He's had an impressive career writing about topics ranging from American social policy, economics, and corporate management to intellectual history, literature, and architecture. In 2008, President George W. Bush awarded Myron Magnet the National Humanities Medal for what the president called, quote, scholarship and visionary influence in renewing our national culture of compassion, end quote. He's the author of many books. He's a graduate of both Columbia University and the University of Cambridge. He holds his Ph.D. from Columbia. Amongst his many books is the book The Dream and the Nightmare, the 60s Legacy to the Underclass, which became one of the most important books in American public policy in the current generation. I enjoyed a previous Thinking in Public with Dr. Magnet on his book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817. Today, we get to talk about his newest book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. And so to Dr. Myron Magnet and our listeners, welcome to Thinking in Public. Dr. Magnet, as I look at your uh, most recent book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution, I have to tell you, I was a little bit surprised that this book came from you. And uh, behind every book like this, there there is a story. And when I say I was surprised it came from you, it wasn't that you would find this interesting, but that you would find these issues urgent. Uh, tell us how the book came about. Well, you know, you and I talked a few years ago about my last book, The Founders at Home. And being a journalist, I write a book because I got questions that I want answered. And so I set out to research. And what I wanted to know in The Founders book is – what kind of republic did the founding fathers envision and what kind of government did they frame to bring it about? I found the answers to those questions uh, that they had come up in the Constitution with something unexampled in human history and 232 years after the Constitutional Convention still the cutting edge in politics. That is in a government that instead of ruling you simply protects your right to pursue your own happiness in your own way in your family and your local community this is just you know this has never been beat it's still avant-garde but then i got a whole bunch of further questions which is wait a minute we don't have that government anymore so what happened to it and how do we get it back? And that led me to Justice Thomas, who in 28 years, in hundreds of opinions, has set forth this really comprehensive account of how we lost it and has laid up a roadmap for its restoration. One of the points you make convincingly, and we'll get to this, is the uh, consistency in uh, the uh, the historical understanding and the constitutional um, interpretation of, of Clarence Thomas. But before we, we turn to Justice Thomas, I want to go back to how you begin the book. And uh, you begin with a quote from Walter Badgett, uh, the famous constitutionalist uh, of Britain's unwritten constitution, who talked about the fact there are really two governments. And in Britain, you can see this so so clearly. You have the, the gilded monarchy, which uh, has all the, the uh, power of impressiveness, but none of the power of, uh, of actually ruling. 
And, and then you have the real government made up of people who uh, who tend to wear business suits, uh, and uh, and and yet they, uh, they they are the government under Britain's parliamentary system. But you you raise that because you argue that in the United States we now have both a, a visible government and an invisible government, but of a very different form than than, than uh, Badgett warned of. And uh, a much less benign form, too. I, I, you know, I think that we are in the midst of a crisis of legitimacy in this country because we have two competing ideas of where the authority of the government comes from. People like me and Justice Thomas, and I dare say you, um, believe that the reason we obey the government is because it rests on that original constitution of 1787 as improved by the Bill of Rights and perfected by the Reconstruction Amendments and the 19th Amendment that gave women the vote. And this constitution guarantees freedom and expects self-reliance. So we're the Freedom Party. Uh, but on, uh, you know, but on the other side, there is what I call the Fairness Party. They're the people who believe in a constitution that works by unelected judges making up laws as, as they go along based on really nothing, um, based on the zeitgeist, based on what the age requires, and an army of unelected, supposedly highly educated, supposedly expert bureaucrats who make rules like a legislature, carry them out like an executive, and adjudicate and punish infractions of them like a, legis like a judiciary. So you've got no separation of powers in this, what Franklin Roosevelt recognized as a fourth branch of government that has, as Franklin Roosevelt also recognized, no legitimate basis in the Constitution. And that's our real government now. That's what people are calling the deep state, um, the, you know, the judges and the bureaucrats and the, the, even the secret service agencies, the secret police agencies. Um, and these don't have any home in the Constitution whatsoever. And it's this, this uh, uh, ersatz government that Justice Thomas has been trying to dismantle in 28 years. Well, I am indeed uh, glad and honored to be on the list you just uh, you just mentioned there. I'm also glad to have received the Edwin Meese uh, Award for Originalism. Uh, and, uh, so, well, uh, kudos to you. Well, let me tell you. I, I, I'm just saying we're of a we're we're coming from a similar uh, a, a similar perspective here, of course. But I think the greatest achievement of your book is in exceeding the title. the The title is Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. Uh, you, what what you write delivers that, but actually, I think you offer the most succinct history of uh, of what's actually happened to the republic and uh, what's happened to the, uh, the the constitutional form of government that was established by America's uh, founders and the and the framers of the Constitution. And I want to get to that story because you really talk about it in three different moves. And uh, honestly, I, I think that. Uh, 
that no one has quite encapsulated the history as uh, as convincingly as you have and succinctly. So just, just walk us through those three different steps in the abandonment of America's constitutional order. Well, the first one is really not very well known. Um, and, you know, the, the founders recognized perfectly well that slavery was a blemish on their vision for the republic. And if they could have done away with it and still gotten the Constitution ratified, they would have done it. Instead, they did everything they could to limit it, to prevent its spread, and they hoped that it would go away. Uh, and the whole history of this country from the 1830s until the Civil War is an effort to compromise to compromise to try to do something to solve it but Eli Whitney gave us the cotton gin slavery spread southward the Kansas Nebraska Act spread it westward and the Civil War came and you know and as after after the Civil War when the Congress was only northerners right remember the southern right. states still hadn't been let back into the Union um, so we passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and the most important part of those was the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which intended to clothe freed slaves in all of the rights protected by the Bill of Rights against any depredations by the state governments. Well, as it happens, two... 1870s decisions of the Supreme Court, one in 1873, the other in 76, just subverted the, that clause of the 14th Amendment, just said, no, no, these are not the rights conferred by the 14th Amendment. In any event, it's not the government that confers these rights. The government only protects them. So uh, ba basically what these two decisions did was to make a dead letter of that heart of the 14th Amendment and allow the reign of Jim Crow in the South for 90-plus years, allowed the turning of the freed slaves into serfs, if you will. And Clarence Thomas says, hey, this is personal with me. I grew up in Savannah under segregation, so I couldn't drink from this drinking fountain. I couldn't walk across that park, couldn't use the good library. I know what government oppression is like, and, you know, it is particularly painful to him that it's his own court that, in effect, nullified the Civil War and made a mockery of the death of nearly 400,000 Union men who died to make men free. So that was... That was Act 1. So let's uh, stop there for just a moment, if we may. Yeah. I, I, I'll just interrupt you because I, I think you're right. Most Americans most Americans have, uh, and, and including Americans who would consider themselves very concerned about the loss of our constitutional order, uh, would not begin the story where you begin it. And honestly, I don't think I would have until you convinced me in this book that that's the right place to begin. I think I would have probably begun – uh, with what you describe as Act Two, or the the second yeah, development. but but the reason yeah. that I'm beginning here, it's you know, it's not my brilliance that's come up with this. It's Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas's yes. finest opinion um, is McDonald v. Chicago, um, which interestingly is a is is a is a Second Amendment case. It's a, it's about possessing guns, right? Um, 
And, and, uh, and Justice Thomas recounts this whole history in his decision in a, in a way that just absolutely gripped me. And I thought, wow, I didn't know about this. And so, you know, I immediately went back and started reading histories of Reconstruction, and, uh, and it was all eye-opening to me. And I hope that the freshness of it comes through in the book because, you know, this is history that we don't, that we don't think about a lot. But, well, absolutely. But yeah, it yeah. really happened. And the Supreme Court was the bad guy here, and and you know as it turns out to be more than once in our history, and and what you know one of the lessons I take away from this is that the fairness party, um, you know, is perfectly happy having judges twist our Constitution of freedom, but. If they look back over the history of Supreme Court subversions of the Constitution, they will see that when the court twists the Constitution, it doesn't always twist it to the left. And uh, I think that not just conservatives ought to want judges who just read the Constitution as the framers write it. Anybody who cares about liberty ought to want judges to read it straight. You know, you mentioned the McDonald decision, uh, at, uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, opinion. Uh, I will tell you another part of that opinion struck me with visceral force uh, when I first read it. And it, it, was, it was a Second Amendment case, famously so, uh, that has to do with uh, the right to bear arms. And uh, I, I remember reading Justice Thomas say, look, and he documents this historically, how there were so many cases in which vulnerable black men in particular were protected from mob violence and from government violence uh, in local situations by the fact that they were protected by uh, by allies with arms. And, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, reading that again, it had visceral force. I thought, you know, this isn't just a constitutional hypothetical. Uh, for this justice, it's a matter of life or death. Life or death, you bet. I mean, he says that, uh, uh, you know, he remembers testimony of some man who remembers his father uh, standing outside a jail where there were prisoners, where there were black prisoners that a white mob was coming after. And, and uh, there was his father standing out there with a gun to protect these vulnerable, innocent men. Uh, and uh, uh, Thomas's Thomas's uh, witness here says uh, it was a most empowering story for him. I can imagine. And and you and you know and and we ought to stop and remember that uh, the the purpose of the Second Amendment uh, is not to guarantee sportsmen the right to go out and shoot deer. The purpose of the Second Amendment is that. Uh, the founding generation didn't want the government to disarm them because they were extremely suspicious of government power. They were extremely afraid that even with the Constitution that they wrote, they could end up with what they called an elective despotism, and they wanted an ultimate recourse against that, and that was the right to keep and bear arms. So that first development comes after the Civil War, when the gains of the Civil War and uh, and even the uh, the constitutional gains, the perfection, as uh, Justice Thomas would call it, of the constitutional order, with the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, those those gains are basically uh, eviscerated by the Supreme Court itself uh, in order to placate 
demands, uh, especially from those who wanted to to revert to a new form of slavery, basically. Basically, and and one of the bizarre things about it is that a lot of those justices were Lincoln appointees. So even when you read the decisions, you're left left scratching your head wondering how they could come to the conclusions they did. But the second development comes in the early decades of the 20th century. And I think most constitutional conservatives, to put it that way, just uh, those who believe the Constitution is to be interpreted according uh, to the text, as Justice Scalia defined a textualist, uh, and and who understand most importantly, perhaps uh, on the ground, the fact that uh, government has only enumerated powers. The, The next step comes early in the 20th century, and especially with Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, our first professor president who understood which way the arc of history bent better than your average American and who really didn't believe in the founding fathers of their constitution. He he believed that uh, modern conditions demanded a modern form of government that could adapt very quickly to changing changing times uh, to a fast-developing technological world. And so instead of being governed by, a, by this limited document, he wanted to have the judges sitting as a kind of permanent constitutional convention making up the laws, and he set up this whole, what we now call the administrative state, all these agencies, starting with the FTC and the SEC, um, that would make laws for us, in effect. And he believed, you know, his key word here was always modernity, expertise, new technology. And you look at this and you think, well, hang on. Um, he read his Hegel, uh, which he taught himself German to be able to read. Um, he, he, he loved that. He loved that philosophy. And who is the hero? who stands behind all this Hegelianism, well, it's the, it's the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, who first set up the supposedly incorruptible non-political civil right. service, which, which did actually, under Frederick the Great, operate very, very efficiently. But the thing about elective despotism, I mean, of, of, about enlightened despotism, is that the Enlightenment always evaporates leaving only the despotism behind. And so if Woodrow Wilson is claiming that he's got something more modern than those antique, bewigged founding fathers, and that his, his, his more modern thing is enlightened despotism, well, that's just a non sequitur. That is not more modern. Being ruled is not more modern than self-government. We still have, in our original Constitution, the most cutting-edge form of government ever invented. So, so Franklin Roosevelt then supersized this system, right? It was Wilson who started it out and laid down the theoretical formulation for it. We've got to have a Darwinian, Darwinian Constitution that evolves with changing conditions, uh, we're not a Newtonian one like the like the founders invented. Franklin Roosevelt comes along and and he just absolutely supersizes it first. And and what he does is he, he puts a gun to the head of the Supreme Court and basically says, if you don't say that these unconstitutional things that I want to do are okay, 
I'm going to enlarge the court and pack it with New Deal supporters, so you're going to lose your power completely. And a judge named Roberts said, okay, I give up. I give up. Um, and that was the famous switch in time that saved nine. But as, you know, as law professor Philip Hamburger says, what's the point of protecting the court if you let the Constitution be traduced in this way? Um, but that's, that's, what the, that's what the court did. And suddenly you have Franklin Roosevelt, who mistakenly believed that the depression was a cri- resulted from a crisis of overproduction, and he wanted to get control of the whole economy in order to limit output. So uh, what he does is get the Congress uh, to, to use the interstate commerce power of Article I of the Constitution to say that the government can control all economic all economic activity in the country. Let me ask and, you to hold on there for just a moment. Sure. Uh, because uh, I want to go back a bit, because I, I, I want to go back to Wilson for a moment, then we'll turn to Roosevelt. So the, the, yes. the first, uh, the first uh, transformation came just after the Civil War, the second with the progressivism of, uh, of Wilson, and, and then with the, the vast government expansion under Roosevelt. But I want to go back to Wilson for a moment, because this is one of my uh, major historical interests in, in, in American history. And uh, you mentioned that Wilson was the first professor president, and uh, I, I, I understand exactly the inflection in your voice when you say that. <laughs> and uh, and then you mentioned uh, a justice named Roberts. I heard that inflection again, uh, you know, trying to maintain the dignity of the court. And uh, uh, the very day we're having this conversation, uh, that's, uh, that's a very contemporaneous that's issue. That's going on now. Yep. But I want to go back to Wilson for a moment because I, uh, I actually read Woodrow Wilson's works as a professor. And what astounded me is that this man would ever be elected president of the United States. There's a hostility in his writings um, to the, the founding vision of the United States. He sees the Constitution of the United States as ratified in 1789 as a constraint upon the natural development of the United States of America. And uh, argued openly that the that the nation would have to transcend the Constitution if it were to develop. He did, and and but remember that he was elected in a three way contest, so he was a minority president. Um, sure. And uh, it was it was one of those awful flukes. Had only Theodore Roosevelt not decided to go in and split the vote, um, we might have been spared. Uh, this guy who wanted to go in and deconstruct what the heroic founding fathers had given us. But you're absolutely right. He was openly hostile. And uh, in, war, in, 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 in book after book and essay after essay, he's, he's, completely, he's completely open and unconcealed about not liking the American idea and not thinking that America is exceptional. He wants to make it more German. Well, more German indeed. And, uh, and there's so many things that, uh, again, intelligent Christian and, and intelligent American listeners might not think about. And that is the fact that Woodrow Wilson was in the first generation of those who identified their expertise as political science. 
Um, yes. And it was because of this infatuation with science as the epistemology of modernity. And uh, so the the most privileged uh, and responsible knowledge would be produced by some kind of science. And uh, and so he really thought the founders were, uh, were, were backwards because they did not look at politics as a science. They looked at it as a way of – of, uh, of 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 trying to uh, arrange a government around a, a notion like liberty. That's not yeah. where Woodrow Wilson was coming from. Imagine the hubris of this. But I mean, what one of the one of the interesting ironies, of course, um, is that both Madison and Hamilton in the Federalist Papers talked about the new science of politics. Um, and uh, uh, one of the heroic efforts that Madison made in the lead-up to the Constitutional Convention was to read crates of books that Jefferson had sent him from Paris um, of all of the political thinkers from antiquity down to the, pre- to the present um, to study in the most, I don't know if you would want to call it scientific way as he did, but in the most scholarly way, in the most, you see, he was really concrete. He wanted to look at all of the republics, ancient and modern, and figure out how they had worked to the extent that they worked and why ultimately they failed, so that he could devise from actual experience, which he believed to be the oracle of truth, right. how to devise a republic that would not fail for the reasons that the republics of the past had failed. So this was real science. It was not made of, out of airy-fairy theorizing, uh, such as Hegel's. Well, I, uh, I think you're also uh, uh, very right to point to the basic Darwinianism behind all of this, a struggle of the fittest, so to speak, amongst nations, and a necessary evolution of, of, of modern human societies. Uh, I will also tell you that I feel a little Churchillian when I tell you that uh, uh, two couplets that, uh, that cause me uh, pain and concern are uh, German efficiency and political science. And in, in Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> yeah, well. In Woodrow Wilson, they were combined. Yes. I feel it in my blood. I really do. It makes my blood run cold. Uh, with Wilson, that was one thing because there, the, even – and by the way, we, before we leave, we've got to go back to enumerated power. So un, until the Wilsonian Revolution uh, – uh, and you can see strains of this coming in the late 19th century in progressivism beginning. But the, uh, until Wilson, uh, it was openly believed that the United States government was limited constitutionally to the exact powers enumerated in the Constitution. Wilson's expansionist uh, progressivist vision was only made possible because he said that the, uh, the the Constitution must no longer be seen as binding in those enumerated powers. And he got the judges to go along with him to some extent, too, and, and uh, set, up these, set up these independent agencies that were going to make up laws based on powers that existed nowhere in the Constitution. So, yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. And uh, the thing about that, that business of the limitation of government, I'm sure that you read in the last couple of months an interesting newspaper article about a case of a rancher in Montana uh, who was worried about forest fires in this dry season. Yes. So since he had a little trickle trickle of water running down his mountain acres, he, 
he dug a couple of ponds so he'd have a reservoir to pump from in case something, in case the wood started to burn. Well, the EPA comes down based on a rule, a, a rule that its bureaucrats made, um, not on a law, you know, in the, in the first instance. And they charged him with polluting the navigable waterways of the United States. And the upshot was that they fined him $130,000 and sent him to prison for 18 months for digging two ponds on his own land 40-plus miles away from anything that could remotely be considered a navigable waterway of the United States, and there was no way that he polluted anything. Now, this is the kind of tyranny that the Founding Fathers were trying to protect us against by limiting government only to those enumerated powers which do not extend to preventing you from digging holes on your own land. And that happened... uh well, in that third development, just, just in the last year. Well, in the it, no, this happened. In the, this happened in the in the in the second development. This the, the right that that sec that second development that second development was Woodrow Wilson with his with his unlimited his unlimited powers and his and his army of smart aleck Ivy League trained experts in administrative branch or independent agencies making rules and carrying them out as if they as if they were the government, which indeed they are, right? Well, which, you, we, and I would agree that are. in that first uh, that first development, some of that happened, but it was primarily related. At least, uh, as I can tell, in that first, uh, well, we're in the second development. We're talking about the Wilsonian expansion. It was primarily limited to financial transactions to, uh, because he was very much concerned, like the other progressives, with big business and controlling big business. But the one I want to point to is something you document in your book, because I think the average American understands the rancher in Montana and a farmer in Ohio, Roscoe Filburn, because uh, it was... It was with the uh, the great expansion of uh, of the government outside those enumerated powers, the rise of the administrative state, and the tyranny of these bureaucrats. Uh, it, it really is illustrated. Uh, you mention it twice in your book, actually, in that 1942 Supreme Court decision, Wickard v. Filburn, over a farmer who uh, actually grew extra grain to feed his own cows and never was involved in commerce at all. And so Clarence Thomas writes an opinion in a case called Gonzalez v. Rach, uh, in which he mentions Wickard v. Filburn quite explicitly, and he says, now look, here's a case in which we have two sick people in California who think themselves protected by California's medical marijuana law. So they are growing marijuana plants for their own use to control their to control their pain and federal agents come in under the federal controlled substances act seize their marijuana plants and uh, file federal charges against them and convict them and thomas and he they they appeal to the supreme court which upholds the conviction thomas strenuously objects to this uh, and and he says excuse me these people have not engaged in commerce, which, by the way, meant something very limited 
when the framers wrote the Constitution. It didn't mean agriculture. It didn't mean industry. It meant basically trading. Um, and so they're not involved in commerce. It certainly is not interstate commerce, right? Their marijuana plants never leave California. And he said, and it's not even economic activity whatsoever. And he said, if we go on like this, if the Supreme Court goes on like this, we're going to have the government regulating potluck suppers next. And this is just not the proper role of a limited government of enumerated powers. So what he's doing in Gonzalez v. Reich is in effect saying we need to overturn Wickard v. Filburn and remind the government that its, its commerce power is a very limited power that has to do with things like running steamboats on interstate waterways or preventing internal tariffs, but, uh, but has nothing to do with telling Roscoe Filburn that he can't grow grain to feed, to feed his own cows, or telling these these two Californians that they, I mean, in the state with a medical marijuana law, that they can't grow marijuana for their for their own medical needs. Right. I think it's so, important to stipulate that here, Clarence Thomas was not saying that the state of California could not criminalize possession of marijuana. That was not the legal question. The legal no, question is whether under the federal. Uh, uh, power of, of, of the Commerce Clause, that the federal government could criminalize uh, an economic activity that didn't exist. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So then we go on to the third stage of, of uh, the courts. Of, I mean, the court, the, it, it wasn't the court that, that really was the main actor in the second stage of the of this version of the Constitution, it was it was the president abetted by Congress in the case of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but the court, you know, in the in, in, in the new in, in, in the case of the New Deal, did it under duress, but nevertheless did it and did not exercise its constitutional duty as it had sworn to do to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. They simply did not obey their own oath. Um, But in the third stage of constitutional subversion, the Supreme Court played a really active role in just making up rights out of whole cloth, out of, as Justice Douglas said, the emanations formed by penumbras from the, the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In other words, out of gas and shadows, um, you know, he's making up a right to privacy that then leads to a right of abortion. And, you know, Justice Thomas has no patience with this whatsoever, because so many of these made-up rights by the court were rights of gangbangers, for example, uh, to uh, monopolize street corners and scare all the passers-by because they were muggers, right? There were an awful right. lot of gang murders in Chicago in, in those years, as uh, unfortunately there are now. Or the rights of students to act up in school and, and, and by the way, the rights of students to sue their teachers and principals um, if they infringed any of these, uh, to sue them personally, if they infringed any of those so-called rights, or the rights of 
housing project residents not to be thrown out of their apartments for selling dope or creating bedlams of noise without a full court hearing. Um, and, th- and Thomas says, first of all, where did they get these rights from? I mean, if you just look at the history of the American common law, you know perfectly well that the police have always had an order-keeping function uh, that goes back to, the, to, to not only the early days of the Republic, but even before. You know that teachers have always been considered in loco parentis and invested with the authority of a parent to discipline their children and turn them into the kind of citizens who 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 have the responsibility then uh, to to bear rights. Uh, And of course, as far as keeping the peace, as far as punishing disturbances of the peace, that also has always been part of the police of the police powers of the state. So where is the court finding these rights to 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 make an anarchy? And he says, and furthermore, please look at the concrete results of what you judges have done. How would you like to live in a community like these inner city communities where, thanks to your work, kids are afraid to walk through these these, uh, uh, menacing streets to schools that are anarchies where the students who want to learn can't learn, and then to come home to housing projects that are so noisy and disorderly that you can't find uh, that you can't find a quiet corner in which to learn your spelling or your multiplication tables because there's there's uh, music banging away from every side all the time. He says, you know, th- th- not only is this from a constitutional from a constitutional theory point of view, illegitimate, but just from an empirical, practical point of view, who can live in a society like this? Remember, you know, that the first civil right is the right to be safe in the streets in your own home. And if the court is inventing a right of criminals to take this civil right away, well, what's the point of having a government at all? Well, absolutely. And uh, and furthermore, uh, we've seen the pattern over and over again of the elites uh, setting down uh, judicial fiat or bureaucratic rulings that uh, will affect where somebody else's kids go to school and uh, whether or not someone else's daughter has to have a biological male in the locker room and, and, and on and on and on. Who else has to live in lawlessness? But they send their own kids to private schools and uh, they can buy their, their own children out of any of these issues. They never have to face the consequences of their decisions. But that's the way elites always operate. Elites operate uh, with a condescending authority over the rest of the population saying, we know what's best for you. And uh, that's exactly what has happened. Because we're doing this for you, we feel a special virtue um, because our intentions are very pure and very selfless. uh, And it's our intentions, not the results that count. Looking at the last words of Dr. Magnet's title, Clarence Thomas in the Lost Constitution, looking to those two words, Lost Constitution, 
reminds us of a very urgently needed conversation in the United States. The great shame is, perhaps the tragedy right now, is that that conversation is largely not taking place. America's public life is now so focused on headlines, it doesn't look at the basic issues, the more fundamental issues that are at stake, including the questions, what kind of nation is this established to be? What kind of order was brought about by our Constitution? Where do these rights arise, and how are they grounded? And, perhaps even more urgently, is the government of the United States of America we now know anything like the government that is mandated by the United States Constitution? Well, as you're looking at all of this, I want to go back to something that, uh, that you address early in the book. And, uh, and, and that's a question, again, I think most Americans never really think about, and that is, uh, where do these rights come from? And uh, there are a couple of issues raised in your book, and both of them deserve new books. That would be my assignment to you, two new books. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yes, both, of, both of them uh, are, are, are raised in your book, and one of them has to do with the fact that the founders understood these rights to be natural rights, uh, rights uh, endowed by uh, nature the and cre- nature's the God, creator. the creator. Yes. And, uh, and, and so you've got very clear language there, which isn't just poetic mentioning the creator. The question is, where do these rights come from? If you're going to, if you're going to establish an order in the face of, uh, of George III, if, if you're going to justify this new uh, experiment, this new order of the ages, and, and you're going to do so in the name of rights, you have to explain where they come from. The, the, the framers of the Constitution never believed themselves to be creating rights. Uh, but merely to be respecting by the constitutional order rights that had been endowed, given to humanity, in particular human beings, uh, by the Creator. But that yes. was that was rejected, and and it can be argued. And again, you mentioned this; it it, it can be argued clearly. There has to be the concession that the, the the framers of the Constitution violated that very principle when it came to the question of slavery. But as uh, Alan Gelzo's argued uh, recently, they they basically put enough bombs in the Constitution uh, about slavery that uh, that you can draw a line of consistency to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as, as completing the constitutional order. But the, but the fact is that now the modern court has denied any ontological uh, rootage of those rights. Where, where, where does the court now think that these rights originate? Well, they think that that the rights originate in the Constitution, but the Constitution as defined by them. And, you know, it's kind of like those Roadrunner cartoons where suddenly Wiley Coyote finds himself running off the edge of a cliff and running, 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 and except that there's nothing underneath him. When, when he finally looks down, blam, he drops to the drops to the bottom. And that's kind of where constitutional law now is, it rests on nothing. It is standing over an abyss. Uh, and if you ask them to justify it, they'll say, well, there's this precedent, there's that precedent, there's the other precedent that finally goes back to substantive due process, which finally goes back to those 1870s decisions that overturned the Civil War, essentially. Uh, and, you know, and it's a pretty embarrassing position to be in when you're saying that, oh, all my, all my jurisprudence rests on a denial 
of giving rights to freed slaves. I think that's a that's rather a pathetic thing. And you know, the framers were not only basing themselves. I mean, I mean they had two bases for these rights. Um, one, uh, or they had they had three at least, really. Um, what, one is that man is endowed by the Creator by these unalienable with these unalienable rights, and they were just flat out clear about this. This inhered in the nature of humanness to have these rights, and that the reason that government was founded is. Jefferson tells us in the Declaration of Independence, is to protect these rights, right? That's the only reason that we have government. Government doesn't give us our rights. Government is there to protect, to protect us, and that's what the whole tradition of political philosophy is about. But furthermore, you know, in all of the law books that the founders studied um, in, in Lord Cook or uh, in Blackstone, um, the the emphasis always was on, but there are also these traditional rights of freeborn Englishmen. Um, and remember, I mean, we were freeborn Englishmen before we were American. Um, these are rights that go back to Magna Carta. They go back to 1215. Um, they go back even to the Anglo-Saxon Wittenagemot. Um, you know that these are these right. are rights that that have that 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 English monarchs and English governments have recognized for a thousand years. Um, so leave us leave us alone. And then a guy like Blackstone um, in his founding era text. Now this is an English judge writing. Essentially believes that the activity of the judge in 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 ruling the common law is to discover those principles that are consistent with English liberty. Um, so, you know, there is an idea of some absolute in there. Um, and uh, where that absolute comes from, people can be very slippery. Um, so let us thank Mr. Jefferson for putting a name to it that is unambiguous. Well, as you look to Europe now, just as one example, you're looking at a society that is so inherently secular and, and opposed to the very idea of natural rights that the uh, the European Parliament, or, as it's now known, uh, the, uh, the well, let's put it this way, the entire Eurostate project, it's based upon the idea that it itself is the guarantor of rights, uh, that, that, that it itself uh, basically not, not uh, causes into existence. Not the guarantor, but the dispe- but, but That's where the I'm headed. That's where I'm, that's where I'm the headed. The source yes. of rights. They only and, exist and, insofar as the European courts, including the, the, the human rights courts and, uh, and, and others, uh, if they do not declare them to exist in this situation, they do not exist. So look where that leaves us. That makes you, the individual, a creature of the state. You belong to the state, which is the polar opposite of what the American founders imagined, which is the state works for us. It is there only as a means to preserve our liberty. And, you know, I, I... if, if asked to choose between those, I think neither you nor I, nor quite honestly any other American, would have a moment's pause about which is preferable. Well, absolutely, or which, or which is deadly. 
I mean, because eventually yeah. a, 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 a regime that claims to be the source of rights can deny them at whim uh, and exactly will. exactly right. And, and, and does, and does. Um, and in the most irrational way possible. So there's the European court uh, you know, taking away all sorts of protections from Christianity while they are covering Muslims with protections. And you have to say, what? What, on, on, on what even basis of logical consistency are you doing this? Um, why are you saying that Christian culture has no, has no standing here, um, but Islamic culture has? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, and you know, uh, without belaboring this uh, and switching entirely to Europe, the, 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 the uh, European Union rejected even in its official history of Europe a reference to Christian influence, I mean, so the, the, which is, in other words, it acts like Europe just emerged virgin-born in the 20th century. Uh, well, you know, it, it didn't, of course. It's, I mean, we can thank the French Revolution for this. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, George Washington had the good sense to look at the French Revolution and think, only bloodshed and tyranny is going to come out of this. And all these years later, we got the, we got the uh, European Union, which is a pallid version of it, but not a very attractive one either. You mentioned one other thing in your book, and uh, I, my guess is that even the limited number of Americans who will think about the first of the issues I raised with you, uh, and that is the, uh, the source of, of rights uh, or the ground of, of rights, uh, they will miss something else you mentioned, and that is that today's Supreme Court denies the existence of a federal common law. Well, there is no federal common law. This is, this is, what, this is Justice Thomas uh, speaking. Yes. Um, and, what, and, and what he's saying is, uh, I mean, and, and it's, it, in, his implication is even more radical than that. It's what the law schools teach us, constitutional law, is not, it, it, there's no such a thing in a way. I mean, from, at least from the point of view of the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's true that the inferior federal courts have to follow precedent. They're pledged to do that. But as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, all these judicial decisions that preceded them are really just what they're said to be, opinions. They are the opinions of very smart men, but very fallible smart men like Justices Brandeis and Frankfurter and Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., um, they made mistakes, uh, and and so we don't work here in America, says Justice Thomas, by the slow accretion of judicial opinion right. upon judicial opinion. And you know what? How much better, uh, he says, would it have been if the judges just stepped up to the plate and did what Justice John, Mar- John Marshall Harlan did, in Plessy v. Ferguson, in which all of the justices except him said that separate but equal was okay in public accommodation for blacks versus whites. Um, And John Marshall Harlan, the lone dissenter, says, excuse me, 
Our Constitution is colorblind and neither recognizes nor tolerates classes among citizens. The law regards man as man. And Thomas says 60 years later, he wrote this a few years ago, said 60 years later, what do we read? We don't read the majority opinion. We read the dissent. So Thomas is perfectly content in his jurisprudence to lay down these markers, thinking that 60 years right. later, when he's dead but America is still alive, um, you know, they're, they're, going to be, they're going to be reading them. So, for example, in the case of Brown v. Board of Education, how much better would it have been had uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren and his court just stepped up to the plate and said, our Constitution is colorblind and does not permit distinctions among citizens. Instead of saying, as they said, in the special case of education, separate cannot inherently be equal, and therefore we are, in, we are, we are outlawing discrimination by race in education. Had, they, had, had the court really had the courage of its convictions in this case and had overturned precedent, we wouldn't have had now 50 years of affirmative action uh, in government contracting and that sort of thing. We would not be discriminating by race ever in anything. And as Thomas says, look what happens when you discriminate by race. First of all, you, you implicitly impute inferiority to blacks because the idea is that without this discrimination, they can't succeed. And you generate so much resentment and so much anger on the part both of blacks and whites that you are sowing social divisiveness that you could have avoided if you just said the law regards man as man, right? We are all created equal. Just as Mr. Jefferson said, and just as the founders wanted to get to, and, you know, and, and when we could get to it, the court flinched. And uh, we got to get sooner or later, we really do got to get to it. Well, and uh, it, again, Justice Thomas has been more consistent than any other justice in the history of the Supreme Court on this matter. Uh, I do yep. think uh, Chief Justice Roberts states this case most succinctly when he says in repeated decisions and, uh, and opinions uh, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, yeah, well, let's let's do it. That that's uh, that's the clarity that we need in this situation. L- looking at at your book, and and by the way, I don't want to leave the common law for just a minute. I want to leave a comment here. I'll, co- I'll I'll come back to it in some other conversation. There there are two historic meanings of the common law here that I think are important. One is is what we might call uh, uh, the pre legislative law. Um, and in that sense, without a common law, we're in big trouble. Uh, 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 and in, in the history of Britain, the common law in that sense exists even to check the power of the king, even if it oh, were yeah. not legislated. Uh, it's very dangerous not to have that common law. But the common law yeah. that Justice Thomas rejects is the idea that the justices are making law, that judges make law. And as right. you say, by the, uh, uh, the the accretion of those laws, they, uh, they basically uh, – uh, modify the constitution by their judgment but it, it again comes back to the uh, the title of your book clarence thomas and the lost constitution i don't want to fail to deal directly with clarence thomas 
uh, a remarkable human being who is now the longest serving amongst the justices on the Supreme Court, one largely unknown to Americans, especially to younger Americans, but a, a man whose biography is uh, is the history of racism in the United States and the fact that he uh, he, he he tasted it firsthand and segregated Savannah. And in, in in a family situation in which he learned character forged uh, under adversity by his grandfather, who built a business and built a farm, and uh, who who lived out the promises of the Constitution in the the the, the respect for and protection of property. I, I love the part of uh, of Justice Thomas's memoirs where he talks about his father, his grandfather, in his cornfield, saying, "This is mine." He bought the land. He planted the corn. Yes. I mean, it's it's really true. I mean, one of the one of the important points I make in my book, and I I I think this is important is as important as anything else. Um, one of the radical things that Justice Thomas says in speech after speech after speech. This is not in his jurisprudence, but. It takes a certain kind of character, individual and national character, to be capable of liberty. And it takes a certain kind of culture to foster the, the nurture of such characters. So there's Justice Thomas. He didn't exactly go from a log cabin to the White House, but he did go from a kerosene-lit shanty in a Georgia swamp to the high bench. Um, Pretty fantastic. As you say, brought up by a grandfather who put him to work in his his little, little fuel oil delivery business, delivering oil and uh, keeping records after school and on weekends, put him and his little brother to work clearing land and tilling fields and growing crops and, and, and butchering animals all summer long. You know, to teach him self-reliance by being literally self-reliant. He said, out there on the farm, we had an off-grid existence. Um, and, and, and they really did, up at dawn to bed at, at dusk, uh, and working, working, working. And, 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 and in addition to teaching the kids, you know, the most extreme, almost pioneer-like self-reliance, what his grandfather was doing was keeping the boys away from street culture, which he understood was absolutely toxic. And and you you mentioned that his grandfather was a self-made man. Well, this was a semi-literate guy um, who had started his own coal and ice delivery business, which then turned into, a, on a very small scale, a, a fuel oil delivery business um, that never grossed more than, I think it was six or $7,000 a year, Justice Thomas says. And it was that business, you know, Justice Thomas said to him, when he was old, the business was starting to decline, why don't you go to work for somebody else, you know? And, and his grandfather said, well, you know, because this business is mine. This business is mine. I don't want to work for somebody else. I want to be independent. And Thomas says, yeah, he wanted to be free. And this is, this is what, fr- what freedom is about. So what his grandfather would always tell the boys is where there's a will, there's a way. And, and although when Justice Thomas went to Holy Cross as an undergraduate, um, he flirted 
with black radicalism and indeed with, you know, had had a sort of sneaking kindness for the Black Panthers for a minute there. Um, he, uh, he, 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 but he, so he went finally in his, at the end of his junior year, he went to a rally for our black political prisoners, um, namely Black Panther murderers, um, he, he, he drove to Harvard Square to participate in this rally that turned into a full-scale riot where cops got hurt, where businesses were broken into and burned, where all kinds of property damage was done. Uh, and it was a real, you know, a riot. A friend of mine actually was, was there and saw it and said this was a serious violence. So Thomas gets back to Holy Cross the next morning, and he goes into the chapel, and he prays. Um, and he prays for God to deliver him from his anger because he realizes that it's going to wreck his life. This anger against what he takes to be American oppression of his race. Um, and what he asks himself is, do I really believe in this country's promise that all men are created equal? He said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, do I really believe that this is an equal opportunity nation? He said, yes, I do. Um, and he makes this beautiful speech years later in which he says, you know, I'm a man, a black man, an American, um, with all the complexity that that involves. Uh, Indeed. And... Uh, and he 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 manages to to balance that very beautifully. But you know, he says he says when he was a kid. I mean, the first thing is his his in this in this self making of his grandfather's. His grandfather became a Catholic, um, and he brought the two grandsons up as Catholics and sent them to Catholic school, where the mostly Irish immigrant nuns taught them that all men are created equal and that therefore segregation is wrong. So he knew this from the start and he knew that the American vision belonged to him as much as to, as, as much as to anybody else. Um, it is so a remarkable had, story. He, I mean, so he had no, he had no problem understanding that men are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights and that it's his job on the court to vindicate these rights. And he has done so, again, uh, more consistently than any uh, any jurist uh, in recent American history, certainly on the U.S. Supreme Court. He is now the longest-serving uh, justice on that court. Justice Antonin Scalia is, is became far more famous uh, for his public arguments and his uh, his well, he's uh, so personality. Funny. He was yeah. so funny. That's right. And his personality, you know, engaging on these issues, uh, making the arguments for originalism and textualism. Uh, there is no record uh, on among conservative justices of, uh, of voting uh, the same way in agreement as was between Scalia and, uh, and Thomas during their years together on the court. But right now, it is very interesting to note that uh, it can well be argued that uh, the, those who clerked under Justice Thomas have more influence in the federal courts right now than those who clerked under Justice Scalia, which in a lot of ways I think points to the longstanding influence that Thomas has had kind of under the radar. 
Well, imagine that. So you you know that uh, he's had a lot of clerks over 28 years, and he and his wife treat them like children, and he's mentored them, mentored them, mentored them. And so now uh, 20% of the judges whom the Trump administration has elevated to the federal bench are ex-Clarence Thomas clerks. So, you know, he's laid out this roadmap for future courts to restore our constitution of liberty, which he's already started to do. And he's put the troops in place to follow out that roadmap in the future, which is why, you know, I am sure that he's going to be looked at a hundred years from now as the most consequential jurist of his time, more consequential than Justice Scalia, his dear friend. But, you know, Justice Scalia uh, uh, he even said, you know, I'm an originalist, but compared to Justice Thomas, I am a faint-hearted originalist. Nobody yes. quite had the guts um, to do it as consistently as Clarence Thomas. And no one has drawn attention to that better than you have, uh, Myron Magnet, in this book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. You know, one of the things that Clarence Thomas says is when he was growing up, when he was growing up, everybody used to read. You, you probably remember this. Remember the landmark books, all those landmark biographies Absolutely. Of, of heroes? I mean, we all read them when we were kids. You know, George Washington, Marie Curie, George Washington Carver. He said we admired heroes, and their whole idea was to teach us character and to teach us that because of their virtues, they were able to deal with such adverse circumstances as they might have faced to mold their own fates and then to go on to mold the fates of of a whole society a whole civilization a whole nation and these were real heroes and these were people that we should emulate and we should try to have characters like them i think that justice thomas can be added to that pantheon of heroes and i don't know if they're still doing landmark books but somebody ought to do one about justice clarence thomas a great way to end the conversation. Again, Dr. Myron Magnet, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Such a pleasure as always. I very much enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Myron Magnet. I also enjoyed reading his book, Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. It reminds me that every single time a reader encounters a book, the very experience of reading a book is, in effect, an intellectual conversation. You have a conversation with the text. You have a conversation with the paragraphs. You have a conversation with the author and the ideas expressed in the book. And what makes that even better is when you can have an actual conversation with the author about the book. That's what makes thinking in public so much fun. The conversation today is an example of the power of just that kind of experience. But my purpose in doing Thinking in Public is to invite listeners into the conversation. In effect, I have the honor of having this conversation on your behalf. There are so many issues that arise from this kind of conversation that will take us to future conversations, including for Christians, an obvious question in light of this book. How do we understand the interpretation of Scripture? in current debates, to be paralleled to the debates over the interpretation of the Constitution. I've talked about that before, and we will talk about it again. But I encourage you to read Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. And, you won't be surprised by this, to have a good conversation about it. 
Many thanks again to my guest, Myron Magnet, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than a hundred of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mogler.